0: AWI, we've overseen the ongoing drop in sheep deaths from wild dogs, an 83% reduction in sheep losses since 2014. And that's been through funding collaboratively and utilising those tools of wild dog coordinators, fences, baiting, trapping, shooting, and technology aids for identification, mapping and alerts. There is one long-standing alert tool which people have mixed opinions about – wild dog trees. It's an age-old tradition where in regional Australia, the bodies of dead wild dogs are hung up on trees, fences, sometimes even signs. Some say it serves a purpose. Others believe the tradition is outdated. You're listening to The Yarn, the number one wool industry podcast. I'm Ellie Bigwood and joining me today on The Yarn is Ian Evans, the Program Manager of Vertebrate Pests at AWI. Ian has extensive knowledge of vertebrate pest control and acknowledges both sides of the wild dog tree discussion. Later in this episode, Ian explains how the wild dog tree tradition may threaten wool growers' social licence to undertake pest animal control, and he puts forward a viable alternative alert tool that landholders could use instead, a 21st century wild dog tree, if you like. But first, let's understand the context of wild dog trees and why they've historically been important to many landholders. Ellie, I couldn't,
1: honestly couldn't put a date on when it started. It's been around, you know, there's photos from the 1930s and probably earlier of of it starting. There are lots of theories about why people did it. Certainly some of it would be to let the neighbours know if as they were riding past on their horse or horse and sulky that, you know, they'd got a dog. Now, the identity of the dog might be significant, but I think as much as anything, it's a, a human behavioural thing of sort of, look, what I've achieved, I've overcome this, What is a has been a fairly major problem for me in terms of this animal or these animals preying on my livestock. So it's it's got a sort of a, a history. Uh, I guess in modern times, people are a bit more mobile. So and there are a few f- fairly famous dog trees uh, around the country. Uh, so it's not just one person who's hanging them up there, it's maybe a number in a region, which is kind of maybe useful in terms of letting the neighbours know that you've got dog problems or you may have solved a dog problem. But as we'll discuss uh, a little bit later, there are actually much better ways of doing that and other ways that don't have the downside risk
0: Mm. So, in summary, it really just sounds like a nationwide way for landholders to communicate the threat or the success of wild dog management in their particular area.
1: Yes, yes. I think that kind of sums it up.
0: So, um, we got a quote from Greg Mifsud, the National Wild Dog Management Coordinator, who said, While I and others fully understand the historic purpose of the activity, travellers from urban areas do not. They do not see that the pest animals were humanely controlled to protect our livestock communities and biodiversity. So let's talk about how the behaviour may be perceived by the by the public. Let's say I'm a traveller who's visiting these regional areas for the first time, and without knowing how much damage wild dogs can cause to communities, livestock and wildlife, seeing the body of a dog or dogs hanging in a tree would be very confronting, Ian.
1: Absolutely, I absolutely support what Greg has said. And I often think of that public view that Greg is talking about, and and it's something that all of us who are involved in pest animal control are concerned about. It's like the front page of a paper to somebody almost from another completely different environment and where most of our population is uh, from an urban environment. And it's no more and no less, and in many cases, it's you know, it's no more informative than the front page and picture and or headlines on a paper are. Unfortunately, there's no easy and quick way of in one picture conveying the damage that can be done by these predators, uh, the impact of that firstly on the livestock and secondly on the owners and managers of the livestock uh, and their uh, family businesses.
0: Particularly in the last, last 18 months or since since COVID really began we've got a lot more people who are traveling Australia's regional backyard and visiting these areas and with so many mobile phones and cameras these images spread like wildfire on social media and to your point they can receive a lot of criticism because they don't understand the background of the images, which can paint farmers in quite a negative light.
1: Absolutely. Uh, the the picture is passed on, frequently misinterpreted. The true story, the background behind how the body of the predator gets to be there is almost never known by a casual observer. And mm-hmm. all of that is is a risk because it relates to the social licence, our ability, under what are very strict regulations in Australia, very strict regulations, to lethally control predators of our domestic livestock.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I want to build on that further, Ian. So, you know, putting that simply, that is the risk of the behaviour to landholders and to producers is risking our social licence to maintain wild dog and feral animal control, which you know you know almost better than anyone, which we've worked so hard to develop.
1: Yes, we certainly have. And as most of your listeners will know, the access to the tools to control pest animals, be it lethal control, and that's the the main one, but also other tools that we use for pest animal control, access to that is very strictly regulated and essentially we hold it the access only because the regulations which are determined by the various regulatory bodies and they take their direction from parliament in each of the states. So if our elected representatives in government believe that there's a majority of people who think that this is such an important issue that they might change their vote uh, as a result of it, then they can take away that right to use things like the toxin uh, known as 1080, which is uh, sodium fluoroacetate, the use of leg hole traps, again, under very strict operating conditions, uh, and so on. So we really operate using a privileged set of tools which it's important that we use properly. And I think almost certainly the vast majority of producers and professionals who control pest animals do use those tools properly and according to the regulations. But we have to be very aware that any misuse or any perception of misuse, and that's the problem with the dogs in trees question. It's about perception. And Probably the, the thing we can do best to manage that perception is to eliminate it.
0: Mm, I think you touched on some really key points there. One, understanding the regulations and using the tools in line with those regulations. What would be the implications of losing the right to use a tool like 1080?
1: Well, um, from the sheep or goats perspective, it could be horrifying. Um, however, there are some who would say, well, we have alternatives uh, or you should find, you should do some research and find alternative toxins to 1080. Yes, and there are other toxins registered for other species, which may or may not be useful for dog control. But the one thing that we do know uh, is that 1080, it is extremely cheap. It is not only extremely cheap, it is extremely effective particularly against canids, i.e. wild dogs and foxes. And those are the two predators that we are most concerned about. Yes, 1080 is used for other species, but it's the cost and the fact that you can go after wild dogs or foxes in a way that is very, very targeted to them. The dose rate is extremely low, but because 1080 is so highly effective on the canids, on dogs and foxes. It means that most other species, and certainly virtually all Australian native species, are highly tolerant of it. And part of that is the fact that we actually use very little of it in the baits that we put out for wild dogs and foxes. So cost would be the first thing that people would notice. But I would say we'd be looking at an increase in cost per dose in the order of a magnitude of five to 10 times the current cost of the poison, let alone whatever the substrate is, whether it's a manufactured bait or a fresh meat bait, the toxin alone would be five to 10 times dearer if we don't have access to 1080. And and almost anything else that we've seen registered newer registrations will have much, much greater implications for non-target species. Mm. There's no indication in any of the alternate toxins that we've seen that they will be as highly tolerated by our Australian native species.
0: And I think that's a key point that often a lot of misinformed people miss that, 1080, as it stands, is the most effective control tool we have because it doesn't affect native wildlife.
1: Absolutely. Um, and that's, once again, it's it's just a, a chance occurrence of history. Uh, and it's postulated that that is largely because a lot of the little bushes and shrubs uh, that occur, and particularly in the drier areas of Australia, have very high Quantities of sodium fluorosilicate or sodium fluoroacetate, which is 1080, in them. So, the species, the Australian native species, have evolved in an environment that's very high in either this toxin or a very close analogue of it. So, they evolved with a lot of this stuff in their diet. So, hence, they're pretty tolerant to it. Now, obviously, that varies from native species to native species, but if you set out to design uh, a toxin to take out wild dogs you would, and you were successful, you would probably come up with 1080.
0: So in summary, Ian, just wrapping up a few key points on what we've talked about so far. We understand the history, the long history of hanging the bodies of wild dogs from trees and fences. We also acknowledge how the behaviour may be perceived by the misinformed public. And we know that there are serious risks to the social licence and allowing producers to maintain wild dog and feral animal control, particularly threatening our use of 1080. So that is why we are discouraging people from undertaking that behaviour any further. However, that said, there are other options to recording and monitoring feral animals, which from its history, we know that's important. We know landholders want to alert each other that wild dogs and ferals are in the area, and that's a good thing. But we do have we do have other options to recording them. And AWI actually contributes funding to feral scan, which you could say, Ian, is the 21st century wild dog tree.
1: Absolutely. You've summed it up really well, Ellie. Uh, In terms of letting your neighbors or the key people who would be members of your wild dog control group or a vertebrate pest control group. Feral scan is a suite of products that are used on your mobile phone or on your computer and or on your computer. And it allows you to choose absolutely who you let know, what you let them know, and uh, and you can tailor make that to suit the, the needs of communication. So logically... In a wild dog group, you want to let everybody else know in the group Uh, within wild dog scan, you you can actually tell them where it was. If you got a photo of the dog off your motion-activated camera, your camera trap, as it were, you can put that on there and you can show the other people in the group that are concerned. So the neighbour who joins that side of your property when you're putting out baits, they might give you a ring and say, well, you know, I'll put some out on my side of the fence as well. So we, we get this sort of community-based approach to control and we continue to support that. The great thing about the modern technology is that individuals can choose exactly who they communicate with and who they don't. The other thing about feral scan, and I know there'll be people listening who will say, oh yeah, that's fine if you've got mobile phone coverage. Barrel scan works as in the absence on-site of mobile phone coverage. In other words, you can record that you saw a dog here or you trapped a dog somewhere else. You can record that spot. Even if there's no mobile coverage there, when you come back to mobile coverage at home or when you cross the top of the hill on the way home, that's information will download at the point in which you've got mobile coverage. Similarly, if you take it back and record it on your uh, on computer, it, it'll link through that link. So it's it's sort of what is for people in country Australia one of the most limiting factors and that is the uh, what is a fairly ordinary coverage of electronic communication.
0: Mm. And Feral Scan, in its whole suite of resources for different key pest animals that affect wool growers and other primary producers, it contains data entered by more than twenty five thousand people in Australia, making it the largest community driven pest animal monitoring program in the country. The more data that's entered in the app, the more useful it will be to landholders and people that use it.
1: Absolutely. From Feral Scan, we are getting and will over time get even more and better information which will allow us to describe accurately from real data recorded out in the paddock in the scrub what's actually happening the number of pests where they're seen the impacts of them where we've had attacks what the attacks were etc we can even you know if you want to put photos in there that can go in the only limitation is the I guess, imagination of the users and certainly the details, but I would strongly suggest to people that they investigate the use of FeralScan. That's one of the reasons that AWI has uh, invested. In round figures, it's a bit over 100000 a year to pay our share, the wool industry's share, of uh, providing, developing and maintaining this electronic communication Uh, service, uh, which I guess I would call, uh, it's the 21st century uh, dog tree.
0: So Feral Scan, the 21st century wild dog tree. Feral Scan receives funding from AWI, the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment and New South Wales DPI through the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions and therefore it is a free resource for you to use you can head to www.feralscan.org.au where, as Ian said, there is a suite of tools, each equipped for the particular feral pest you're dealing with. But in this conversation, the wild dog scan tool is there and you can record wild dog sightings, attacks, any control activities you're undertaking to digitally communicate this with other landholders around you. So definitely go and check out those online tools. That's a wrap on this episode of The Yarn. If you enjoyed the episode or have any feedback on the podcast, get in touch with us via email, the yarn at wool.com. We love hearing from you. AWI are on Facebook, Twitter at Wool Innovation and Instagram at Australian Wool. From me, Ellie Bigwood, thanks for your company and catch you next time for another yarn.